How many of you know Jesus found it to be unfriendly when they crucified him? And he entered into unfriendly territory and saved us and brought us out. Kind of like with Abraham, who is a type of Christ, who went in and saved Lot and also even saved uh, his goods. So we know that Jesus comes and he does this, and it is an assignment from God. But let's read the traditional uh, story before we, we talk about Jesus, Matthew one twenty one through 23, fourfold assignment. And this is just the traditional Christmas reading. I like reading it because it just reminds us of the overall narrative of the story. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary as his spouse's wife, being great with child, and it was so, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good tidings and great joy, which shall be uh, to all people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into the heaven, that the shepherds said one to another, Let us go even unto Bethlehem, and see the thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with excuse me, haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all things that they had heard and seen as it was told of them. Amen. So this is the the great Christmas story of how Jesus came, and we read that a lot, and we stay kind of in that realm where Jesus is still a baby. And that's good, because that is the incarnation. But the incarnation is only one small part of the story that we really need to to understand. And so I, I take us to Matthew, the first chapter, and you can turn there as well this morning, and I want to read another scripture that I want to talk about four different things that Jesus took on when he came to planet Earth through the incarnation. And of course, that is the Christmas story, the incarnation. And we know that Jesus came and was all man and all God. He wasn't like partly man and he wasn't just, you know, manifested, you know, in, that, in an expression of man. He came and became a man. He became part of the human race because the first Adam lost our position with God and it had to be a representative of the human race because Adam stood as the head and the representative of the human race which turned against God 
and caused the fall of mankind, there had to be a head and a representative for the human race to stand in to redeem us from that fall. But look what it says in Matthew 121, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Jesus means Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. That makes that uh, that conception supernatural, an incarnation, a child of God. Behold, a virgin shall be a child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. Now, you know, God with us, we know that, well, isn't God omnipresent, Pastor Bill? Yes, he is omnipresent. But God with us means manifested into the realm of the human race. God literally put on earth suit, became a man. He came in and was part of us and became one of us. And it was a supernatural thing that there has never been anything like before or since. So today I want to give four different things uh, about that assignment, how he came, and four things uh, that were upon him. I alluded to some of these things last week and four crucial things that Jesus had to do that were imperatives. Because, see, you know, Jesus, when he came, he was in heaven. Now, think about this. Jesus was a spirit being. He was eternal. He had no flesh to be tempted with. You know, temptation comes by way of our flesh. He had no sin as a result of having flesh, which would be a result of temptation. No sin. No tempting, no sin. And no pain, which would be the result of the sin. So the flesh is what causes us to be able to be tempted. Tempting is what causes us to sin, and sin is what causes us pain and punishment and judgment to come into our life. He had none of those things, and he was tested in all ways as a man, yet found without sin, the Bible says in Hebrew 4. So we know that he really took on sin. He was really tempted. He was really like us, and he really could have sinned, but he didn't. And aren't you glad he didn't? And therefore, no eternal limitations. You know, he left this eternal state, this spiritual state, and took on limitations. Everybody say limitations by becoming a man. It says that he limited himself and became a man. He humbled himself and thought it not robbery with God to be conformed and made in the image of a man. So he comes down, and that's what we call the incarnation. And four things that Jesus puts on. Number one, he puts on the burden, and he puts on uh, this, this concept of flesh. That's where, you know, carnivore, we get carnal, carnivore, incarnation. That's where the word comes from. It means flesh, to put on flesh. Jesus put on flesh. Turn with me to Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-two, a very interesting uh, verse of scripture. And nothing like this had ever happened before, nor ever will, because when we see what Jeremiah says, we can, it gives us kind of an idea of what God did, and it was called a new thing. Jeremiah 31, 22. I love this scripture. This is a truly an incarnation, Christmas time scripture that we can look at that's very obscure and not very often mentioned. It says in Jeremiah 31, 22, How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing, a new thing in the earth. The Lord's created a new thing in the earth. I thought the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. But God can create something new. In other words, this has never been done before. There's nothing like this. God has created a new thing in the earth. This has never happened. This goes against nature. This goes against everything 
that is normal. He's created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall come past a man. What does it mean, come past? Is that a compass like tells you east and west and north and south? No. Compass means encompass. Everybody say encompass. Surround, envelop. A woman will envelop a man. How does that happen? Does a woman come up and swallow a man whole or like the whale did Jonah? How does a woman encompass a man? How does all of a sudden a man that already exists get encompassed by a woman? In other words, this is a new thing. This is it. In other words, this is the incarnation. In other words, there's a man that already exists that gets encompassed or put in the womb of a woman or encompasses this man with her body. In other words, the creator of the universe first puts on a mother's womb. Now think about that. And then, through the natural process, puts on a human form or a body. Certainly this is something new in the earth. And now think about this. Here is a man, eternal creator, the eternal creator of all things, is birthed by his temporal creation. Let me say that again. The eternal creator, the guy who's made everything, who's always lived, is birthed by his temporal creation. In other words, he comes through the birth canal of a woman that he created. That's just the Usually it's the woman comes first and then the baby. But here the baby came first and then the woman gets wrapped around him. That is an unusual thing. That is the incarnation. And God says, this is a new thing that I'm going to do. You backslide in Israel. He says, you've never seen anything like this before. I'm going to great lengths to come down there and save you all. There's never going to be anything like it ever again. And there's never been anything like it. And Jesus puts on human form. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God comes to us in the form of a messenger or a word. God is Word. In other words, He speaks things and they come into existence. The beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God. The Bible is the living breathing word it, it, it it's a living thing there's a, in other words there's a person behind it. ever say a person behind it it isn't just something that a bunch of people can it is the very expression of the mind of god it is the very message that he wants us to understand and it's called the word it's the word for man it's the word for us in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god verse 14 it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us wow you know, it, it really is true. You are, your, you know, if you listen, listen to what people say, you'll find out that's what they do. I, I can tell you a lot by just listening to what a person's words are. You know, and a person will always speak in line, and he may be disingenuous. He may go to church and say nice things, but, but if you could listen to him talking to himself and talking when nobody's listening, if you could listen to him talking when he doesn't think anybody's paying attention, generally what he is saying will reveal in his life what he is doing, what he is thinking, and who he really is. Can I get an amen? You know, I really believe that you know, the Word of God really encompasses everything that God is, and the Holy Spirit might have to give you revelation to understand that word. But God's word encompasses 
what he is. Because in verse 18 in John 1, it says that God, I'm just going to read this one. Go ahead and turn there. This is a powerful scripture. I really like uh, this verse in John 1, 18. And of course, we know in, in 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In verse 18, it says, and now hath, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Everybody say declared. So he preexisted, he became flesh, and the becoming flesh was a declaration of the word made flesh. In other words, the thing that God thinks about us, the things that God knows about us, the thing that God wants for us, the things that are in God's minds and thoughts in his word became flesh and then it says he has declared himself through Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the father declared to us in a living pictorial expression. In an object lesson of a man come to earth to show us what God is like. What God wants for us. What he's like is he's love. What he wants for us is healing and deliverance. Prosperity and blessing. What he wants for us is to be delivered from sin and to be made righteous. And the first step of the incarnation was, number one, he needed to declare himself to us. He gave us a book, and it says, Lo, I come unto you in the volume of a book. It is written of me in Hebrews. But now he came, not just in the volume of a book, but now he's come in the form of a man to declare the book. And it's a very powerful thing. So the incarnation is Jesus comes and reveals himself to us. And you know, Philip said something, and, and I'm, I'm just going to say it. Philip said something that was kind of stupid. How many know sometimes the apostles just didn't get it? And Peter, especially Peter. Peter really said some foolish things. And Jesus even had to say, Satan, get thou behind me. Now, if, one of, if, a church member, if a pastor said that to a church member, they'd really be mad. And you know, but Jesus said that to Peter. You know, Peter, you know, Philip, some of these guys, you know, they were just 18, 20. They were just young guys. They didn't know. They weren't biblical scholars. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were just guys, you know. They, they didn't have some big theological education. They, they kind of just didn't think a lot. And, you know, in John, we see that Philip says, well, Jesus, when are you going to show us God? Can you imagine? It's like, dude, that's so insulting. I am God. And I've told you that several times now. Now, think about this. Look what he says, John, and we'll go over there, John 14, 8 and 9. He says, and Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. We'll be happy if you'll just do that. He's thinking, what have I been doing all this time? She show us the Father, we'll be happy. And Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou? Then show us the Father. Whoo! It's kind of like, then he says, believe it's not that the, the Father and I are one. And, and, and he just, you know, people want to know, well, what's God like? You know, they won't read their Bible. They won't come to church. They won't study about Jesus by studying the Bible. All the prophecies that tell you everything that he was going to do. And then he came and did and, and his whole life and who he was and all these things. And they're, and they're in this deep search for God. Anybody got any relatives like that? You know, they're, they're reading all the books on philosophy. They're reading all these theological books. They're, they're, you know, they're reading the top 10 bestsellers. They're, they're, they're in this great journey. And, and mo- a lot of them will say, well, I'm, I'm trying to find myself. I, I say, look in the mirror, dummy. 
Now look in the Bible because it's the ultimate mirror that will tell you all about you, that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and you need to come to Jesus. But anyway, long story short, if you want to know about God, you just look at Jesus. It's simple. My, you know, my, you know, my best theology is, you know, I, I've got, you know, degrees, three degrees in theology in graduate school and, and all this good stuff and, and all these studies and I've been reading and, and studying it for, for a lot of years and all these things. You know what my most profound theology is? Jesus. Jesus is my theology. It isn't systematics by Calvin or, or any of these other guys. I look at G- Jesus is the theology of the New Testament. He came and he declared himself. And if that isn't good enough, I'm sorry. You're going, you're going way off in a wrong direction. But Jesus will tell you who he is, who God is, who you are, what you need, and how he's come to save you from your sins. Can I get an amen? Jesus is theology uh, completely personified. And he told, he said, Philip, do you not know, man? It is me. I'm it. It, it. There isn't something else coming. There isn't something else beyond this. This is it. The incarnation. Powerful thing. Number two, we go to the impartation. The impartation or the transferal of sin. Jesus had to become sin. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, And the Lord has laid upon him. He put on flesh, and now he's having sin put upon him. There's four things that get put upon Jesus that he's going to take on or put on. And the first one is he put on human flesh. And then he had to put on sin. He had to be the burden bearer. He had to be the sin carrier. He had to be the one in whom it says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. He's laid all of our iniquities upon him. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the priest, the Levitical priest would come and they would bring the lambs in Israel. And of course, they would slaughter those thousands of lambs on the day of atonement to cover the sins of Israel for yet one more year. And they would come and the high priest would take the lamb and slice, before he slices it, throat, there would be this thing called the impartation and the transference or transferal of sins from the people of Israel. And he would lay his hands and he'd put it on that little lamb or that goat in some cases. And the sins of Israel would be transferred and all the sins would be put upon that lamb. And then they would slice its throat and kill it. And of course, that's what happened in the Passover when they came out of Egypt. They were to kill a lamb. The high priest would kill a lamb. And why did they kill a lamb? And Jesus was the lamb that was slain for us. It's because all of our sins had to die. Death had to die. The death-producing force of sin, which is the law of sin and death. You could say the law of sin that causes death. Death had to die that day, and death had to be put to death through a living, breathing, sinless, spotless lamb that had to take our sins for us, and it had to be put upon him, and all the sins of the world came upon Jesus, and he had to not only carry our flesh and limit himself to a human body, but in the incarnation, in the Christmas story includes this, not only did he come to earth and we just had a happy meal together, but there was a very 
very serious thing that had to take place. He took on our sin and carried it. That's a powerful thing. You know, people don't like hearing stuff like this. You know, they, they did a survey recently on the, the human-centered tapes that are sold in the evangelical world, in Christendom, in Charismania, and in Evangelica, and all, and all the Christians that believe their Bibles these days, supposedly, even though 62% of evangelicals don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture anymore, which is really a sad thing. 52 don't, 52% don't believe in a literal devil. And they should, because that's what we're up against. You see, what we, what we need to realize is, is today, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but we know this, that God is, is working through us, and, and if we don't have an understanding of what Jesus did in this, in this great putting sin upon it, on him, then we don't really understand the gospel, and people don't want to hear it. Now I just remembered what I was going to say. The whole thing about the Christological sermon tapes being sold, all the tapes that are sold in America. Someone did a survey of all the tapes, you know, your best life, or maybe how to get blessed and three, you know, quick steps to prosperity. Those things are good. Those things are great. They're all right. I'm not against them. But 98% of the tapes today sold are man-centered, and only 2% are Christ-centered, and they can't hardly sell the Christ-centered tapes. How many know there's something wrong in America today? The Christ-centered, when you learn these things, like what is the incarnation? Taking on flesh. What else did he put on? He put on sin for us. People don't want to hear that today. People don't want to hear the truth, the deep, profound doctrines that will keep the body of Christ rooted for the next hundred years. They want to, right now, give it to me, feel good, I need immediate gratification sermon. The very shallow, uh, not, you know, we need to learn the things that's going to keep us grounded, our kids grounded, and that next generation grounded. Because a lot of the stuff that's being taught today, if if you just go by that, then you, you haven't learned those 12 points in the Apostles' Creed, which are the foundations of Christianity. You haven't learned the things. And, you know, here, it, the, the thing that's being declared in Jesus' life is that he carried our sin. He became that lamb that was slain. Second Corinthians, it says this in 5 and 21. It says, he, who, he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Some translators say carried sin, became sin. I, you know, you can, you can split hairs over that forever. But... In some form or fashion, the high priest of heaven put his hands on Jesus and made him the burden bearer, the sin bearer, the sin carrier for mankind. That was the second stage of his assignment to planet Earth. First, you know, if if we stop, it's no wonder Christians don't understand. If we think Christmas is just about a baby being born instead of an incarnated Savior that came to have sin put on him, to take away our sins from us, then we have a very shallow, and it's no wonder the secular world has taken over Christmas. We've got to understand what this is really about. And he came and put on flesh so he could carry sin. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1 and verse 14. And I want to give you, he is called our Passover lamb, but what's really interesting here is Peter notes that he was a spotless lamb. 1 Peter 
uh, 19, excuse me. Your bad handwriting will always catch up with you. 1 Peter 1, 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as a, of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That without blemish, without spot means without sin. Without iniquity, without sin. Jesus came as the spotless substitute. And he came to save us from our sin. That, the, the, some people call it the great exchange. He took our sin, we took his righteousness. We owed a debt we could not pay, he paid a debt he could not owe. Because he was righteous. And, you know, when you understand that, that he came and took our place, you know, Santa Claus seems pretty insignificant. Amen. And so we need to understand that. Okay, number three, he took on the adjudication and the propitiation. So he took, you know, when he, when he came, he took on uh, the incarnation. And then secondly, he took on really, you could even call it the, the transformation. And, and really, I, I believe this that when we look at that, uh, the transferal of sins. And then thirdly, he took on two very judicial, very uh, profound words. Let me just tell you what those words mean. They're not, they're not that hard to understand. Adjudication just means the formal pronouncing of judgment. That was the cross. He was found on the behalf of man- mankind uh, condemned because he carried our sins. Propitiation... Comes secondly. Propitiation means the removal of wrath with an offering. In other words, God's wrath cannot be placated or removed until there is a just offering given or a payment due for the sin. And how many of you know the wages of sin is death? That is the gift, that is the sacrifice that is given, that we must understand these things. And if we don't understand these things, we will not. Uh, fully be thankful for what the Lord has done in our lives. And so we, we've got, number one, we've got the incarnation. And then, secondly, we've got what I call the impartation of sin. Ever say impartation, where he becomes sin. And then, thirdly, we have the adjudication propitiation. It says, our Jesus took our punishment. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, and smitten of God and afflicted. But, and Isaiah clarifies and says, you're thinking about this wrong. The Jews thought, surely has borne, you know, he thought that he, they, he was carrying his own sins, but surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God. In other words, they thought he was getting stricken and smitten of God for some sin he did. He did. And, but, you know, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. So Jesus became that lamb. He carried that sin. He became that burden bearer. And Isaiah 53, I want everybody to turn to this scripture. And it pleased the Lord to do it, to crush him. I always wondered, what does that mean? Why? I mean, I can see the necessity of it, but I can't see the pleasure of it. You know, that, that verse had always troubled me back there in Isaiah. I can see why the Lord would say, this is necessary. And I would think that, you know, the, the Heavenly Father was, was uh, you know, weeping when he did this, I'd like to think. And, and when I read Isaiah 53, you know, he, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and, you know, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, it says. 
and, and, and all these things, the punishments. And you look at that verse, Isaiah 53, 10, and it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. See, that's that propitiation. That there has to be an offering to take away God's wrath. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied because God is a just God and justice has to be satisfied. Propitiation has to be made. Wrath has to be placated with a gift or a sacrifice. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall many, my my righteous servants shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And I, and I thought about that. And how could the Lord be happy? You know, you'd think he'd be sad. But, you know, I think of the old story that's used many times in evangelism, how the judge is sitting on his, behind his big desk thing, and, and the one who's being adjudicated comes, and he finds him guilty. And the judge can sentence him light, or the judge can sentence him very heavily for what he's done. And the judge stands up and says, I find you guilty in the fullest measure of the law. And I sentence you to the maximum punishment that is doable according to this law. But then he takes off his robe and goes down and he pays the fine and he takes the punishment and the judgment for him. See, the reason why the Lord could be pleased is because he himself came down and put all these things on himself and he didn't have to put it upon us. Yeah. See, it pleased to bruise him because he says, that's me. I'm the judge. I've taken off my robe. I've walked down from the podium. I've turned around and faced the music, so to speak. I've received the sentence. I'm paying the punishment and the fine, and I'm the one who's going to carry it. So that makes me happy that I can be the one to carry their sins and to take their adjudication and their propitiation, in other words, the punishment, and I get to do it for them. I love them that much that it makes me happy that it's me and not them. How many of you say that's a God who loves us? That's an amazing Christmas story right there. That he took on first flesh in the incarnation. He took on sin, secondly, as the impartation of the priest laying his hands and all the sins of Israel going into the Lamb. And now he took on the propitiation and the adjudication. In other words, he paid the price. He's the one that went and he hung on the tree. He's the one who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In Second Peter, it talks about that. And you can see how it says that by his stripes, we are healed and he took on our sicknesses and he took on our sins. And, and the many different places where it talks about that. One translation says he became leprous when he hung on that cross. And he carried all the sins of the world. And not only that, but he carried all the ill effects of sin. What's the ill effect? The wages of sin is death. He became the recipient of the divine punishment of God, and he was put to death. But he did all that 
carried all these things. He put on flesh. He put on sin. He put on the punishment. He, was, he bore our sicknesses. He bore our punishment, it says. Surely he has borne our grief. Surely he has carried. Born and carried means to be like clothed and carry it. In other words, he put on flesh. He put on sin. He put on the punishment. He carried it. He bore our sickness. He carried our diseases. He carried that punishment of death. And sickness and disease is just the force of death. And then he put on glorification for us. As the firstborn among many brethren. He put on as the first fruit. And shows us what's coming for us. Turn with me to John 20. And well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the next scripture. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 50. But how many remember in John 20, 19 where they, they're all, you know, Jesus has been put to death. They're all in the upper room. And, and Jesus is risen from the dead. And, and Mary's with him. And, and he's coming. And, and all the disciples are in there. And, and, they're, and how many of you know it says suddenly he comes into the room and he didn't open the door. How many of you know what that means is he's in his glorified body and he passed right through the wall. Yes, amen. This is where it starts getting good. Yeah. So, you know, the guy that had to put on flesh, the guy that had to put on sin, the guy that had to put on the punishment, now he gets to put on the glory because right. he paid the price for us. Amen. But the good thing is he shares that glory with us and we get to put on glory too. And Jesus said, you know, uh, he, he came in there and he confronts, you know, Peter and and, and starts, uh, Stephen, excuse me, he confronts Stephen. And Jesus just comes right through that door, I mean, in a glorified body. And I like it because it really shows that Jesus, that his body was, you know, how many of you know he ate breakfast with him yeah. at the sea? In other words, the same body, now I don't get this, the same body that can sit there and eat breakfast with him can walk through the wall. Now, I can see the body going through the wall. Then all the fish get knocked down and do, <laughs> fall to the ground before it hits the wall that was in his stomach. Because to me, that's still natural. Now, how, how does that what he eats suddenly become glorified and go through the wall with him? You know, maybe you need to use the bathroom before you walk through the wall or something. But I don't know. Just kidding. No. But, but, you know, but I'm just trying to get you to think about it. How does that happen? He's got a glorified body. How does... How, that, that, how many of you know that's beyond what we can understand? That's one of those mysterious and wonderful truths. And the good part is we're going to have that same thing. Let me tell you what Paul says about that. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty, And he says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, our flesh and blood can't, we, it can't go into eternity. It'll start stinking after a while. You know, it, it's really, you know it, our, flesh, our flesh and blood, the way it is right now, cannot go into eternity because it's been corrupted with sin and the death has to die. We've got to put that old body to death because it's filled uh, with death. It can't go with you in this. It's got to be changed somehow. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. See, we can't understand this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. How many of you are glad you're going to be changed? You know, I've got some old sports injuries. I'm sure glad that's going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Wow. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. 
And this mortal must put on immortality. And how do we, you know, when, when we look at that, so when the corruptible hath put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, you know, they always use this one at funerals. I think this is way too, much, too, too fun a scripture for funerals. I mean, I don't like the fact that you, when you read this, you're thinking, oh, this is the funeral. This is the funeral verse, you know. No, this is the victory verse, folks. This is the awesome verse. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this uh, mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible shall have put on the incorruptible, and this mortal have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? In other words, we're going to live forever. We're going to have glorified bodies. And it's going to look something, you know, like what we look like now. Not totally, hopefully not totally for some of us. No, just but, but we, you know, we're going to be recognizable. But it's going to be a new glorified body. And it's going to be forever. And Jesus comes and he puts on glory. First, he, you know, he put on a physical body. Then he put on sin. Then he put on the punishment for sin. And now he puts on this glory body. Now he puts on his eternal earth suit. And it works in heaven too. This earth suit now also works out because he can eat on earth. He can walk through walls on earth. He can go up in the ascension, his own personal rapture, you know, when he went up alone. And, and, and he, he, he can take it and go to the ascension and go up the spiritual elevator, you know, Jacob's ladder, go all the way to heaven. And he can be in heaven and, he, and this body works for there too. And that's what we're going to have. I don't know about you, but I kind of like that. I, kinda, like, I think that's a, that's a really great Christmas present. See, the incarnation is way more like Paul Harvey says, let me tell you the rest of the story. Let's not just stop it. Jesus was born. Let's have the presents. You know, th- there, there's, a, there's a fourfold thing here that's very profound. First John, look what it says in chapter 3. In verse 2 it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as his. I like that part where it says we shall be like him. We're going to have that kind of body. See, it says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We're going to finish here in, in Colossians and Romans. We've got two verses left, and we're going to let you out a little bit earlier than usual today. But look what it says. You go back over to the book of Colossians. It says some very profound things. And if you'll begin to understand that firstborn from the dead, how many of you know we're all spiritually dead? And then we get born again, and our spirit man gets born again. And then hopefully we renew our mind. That's our, that's our mind and thinking getting born again. You all understand that? That we, we, we renew our mind. So our spirit's born again. Our mind starts getting born again by reading the word. It gets renewed. But then the full-on salvation comes then when our body gets born again. And every bit of, every part of us becomes born again or recreated. And that's what's really called glorification. Then we become like we were probably originally created to be. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if an Adam and Eve couldn't walk through a tree. That doesn't say that, but I think they had glorified bodies. Because it says light emanated from them. 
And, you know, and then shame came and they covered themselves up. And glory was upon them. And I think, I have the strong suspicion, and I think is my personal opinion, I don't know if I can prove it, but I think they had glorified bodies before the fall. Because he says he's going to redeem everything back to its original state. How many of you know that's good news? Because the Lord made everything good in the beginning. And then he's going to redeem it back to being good again. And I think that he, what he redeemed back, and it's an indication because he's the second Adam. So I think that he must have been like the first Adam in his glorified state. Can I get an amen? So when we look at that, we, we can see that, you know, being the firstborn among many... Well, Jesus, you know, he, he's not really born like a human was born. So what is that talking about? He's the firstborn among... In other words, he's, he's getting reborn. In other words, he's already spiritually not unsaved. He never had sin. But he raised from the dead, and he got kind of physically made alive again. He got rid of that sin. He carried the sin and left it off in hell. He kind of got, you know, free from sin, kind of like we do. But then he comes, and he has a new body. He's kind of the first fruit of everything. He's kind of the model and the, the model of everything that we're going to have. And so he comes back, and now he comes in this new, in this new glorified body. And look what it says in Colossians 1 and verse 18. It says this. It says, and he is the head of the body. So if the head gets glorified and becomes a new glorified body, then don't you think the rest of the body is going to be? Yeah. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead and all things that he might have preeminence. So it's talking about being the firstborn from the dead. Now let's go to Romans, and we're going to see and get insight in what firstborn from the dead entails or what it really means. Now if you read in Romans 8th chapter... Verses 29 and 30, it gives you that same phrase, firstborn. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And that, that's all of us. How many of you know he did foreknow all of us? How many of you know he predestined all of us to go to heaven? But some of us are refusing to do it and cooperate. Because we've got free will. Now listen. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to his image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now look at verse 30, the restatement of that. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. And if you'll take that in the context, you'll understand that to mean that the firstborn among many brethren really means the first one who is glorified, and all the rest are going to be glorified like him. Amen. So Jesus came, and the incarnation starts with him taking on flesh. Secondly, it goes to him taking on sin. Thirdly, it goes to him taking on punishment. And it's all for us. He didn't do this for for himself. He did that for us. But then lastly, he takes on glorification for us. And we all take on glorification with him. That is the Christmas message about the one who came to us in the form of a man. Amen. Let's all stand up. Amen. You know, we need to be thankful that the message of Christmas is about a baby being born in a manger, but it goes way beyond that. That's just the the dumbed-down, you know, Hollywood version. What we really need to be thankful for is that young baby came in the form of a flesh, carried and took on a body, took on our sin, took on our punishment, and took on the first fruits of our glorification to show us that we do not know what we shall be, but we do know we'll be like him.
to give us something to look forward to, something to look to that one day we're going to be glorified with him, that we're going to be eternal, we're going to be incorruption is going to put on, corruption is going to put on incorruption, immortality is going to put on mortality, and death is going to be swallowed up in victory. Amen. That is the true Christmas message. And we need to share that with people. We need to understand that as Christians. And we need to, when we give gifts, and, you know, God so loved the world that he gave. If you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Heavenly Father give? You know, the, the gift that we're giving isn't just, you know, temporal gifts. It isn't just Jesus being born. The gift that we're, is forgiveness of sins. is glorification. It's eternity with God in a glorified state. I don't think we can understand how great that's going to be one day. So let's be thankful for Christmas, and let's be sure that when we're given the gifts that we remember, the gift that was given was eternal life. Amen? Let's bow our heads.